using contractors for a variety of different countries is kind of a double-edged sword in some instances as well. If other countries are able to provide these indictments, particularly the US DOJ, right, the information and the insight that we get from those indictments and being able to connect different actors to a variety of different activity, that can be extremely useful for us as security researchers, be able to tie all that activity together. I would just say overall, I think with front companies from what we've seen, it's a way to sort of fill the, the skills gap and pull from a larger talent pool, which might not initially be amenable to using their technical skills for offensive purposes. So as we move to IoT, as we move to 5G, as we move to other internet connecting technologies, or as security technologies continue to innovate and try and keep pace with adversary tradecraft, right, there is a need to constantly evolve. So your existing uh, workforce might not have that capability in-house, and this is something that they might need to look elsewhere for. Welcome back to another episode of Maniant's Ion Security Podcast. I am your host, Luke McNamara. Today, joining me, I have the pleasure of being joined by three other Mandiant teammates. We have John Doyle, Principal Consultant, Michelle Cantos, Senior Analyst, and returning guest, James Sadowski, also Senior Analyst. Great to have all of you here today. Thanks for having us, Luke. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate the invite, Luke. So our, our topic of conversation today, and we can go with this in, in a lot of different directions, but where we're, we're going to start with, at least, is the role of contractors in cyber operations. Uh, I think especially we're going to be focusing on the offensive side and where activity that we've tracked over the years potentially is involved with uh, some of these different organizations, companies, groups, others. And then how that sort of shapes the the threat that we see, whether that's at a very strategic level, where we understand that these groups are providing support to different countries, or even down to maybe some of the more tactical observations where we've seen evidence of some of the companies out there in this space that we know providing direct support, and we're able to make that tie. Where I think probably is a great place to start, and John, I think you're going to kick us off here, is when we, I guess, approach this topic and we're thinking about the role of contractors in c activity and all the different forms that can take um, and how countries in particular leverage contractors, what does that usually look like? What are all the different areas that contractors play a role in when it comes to the operations that were identified and tracking and following as campaigns across the globe? Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great start, Luke. So when, when we're thinking about offensive cyber programs, we need to kind of conceptualize what the actual construct of those programs looks like. So oftentimes when you kind of hear this, the first thing that people's minds gravitate towards is, well, there's hackers, they're, they're on keyboard, they're conducting operations, but there's actually a lot more elements that go into that. Um, so much like in intelligence analysis, we have an intelligence life cycle, right? There is an operational requirements life cycle too which involves identifying the type of technological capabilities you need in order to go out and conduct your mission. In this case, we're scoping it down to espionage, right, CNA-type activities. So when we look at it from that angle, we're talking about vulnerability research, making a determination as to whether vulnerabilities can be turned into exploits, exploit development, so packaging the exploits to bypass existing security products and security technologies, 
malware development, infrastructure procurement. Uh, there are some on net keyboard operational support elements that also could go into that too. But we're mostly going to focus on kind of those those top four categories there, which really kind of are the broad construct of any CNE program itself. So the, the normal question that usually comes up following this one is, all right, well, tell me a little more about why a government would want to use contractors. Why wouldn't they just organically kind of build their own in-house capabilities? And and I suspect that's probably where you were going to go with that, Luke. So I'll, I'll just kind of you know, dig in right now. And when we're thinking about the use of contractors, what that decision point is, really kind of we bucket it and made it into like three or four different categories, right? We're thinking about an expansion of the labor force. We're talking about expanding technical capabilities. And also we're looking at it kind of from a plausible deniability standpoint, right? So we, we all know it's it's we're living in an environment where technological innovation is happening day in and day out. And it's sometimes hard to stay current with the trends that we're seeing with innovation taking place while also, you know, doing your day job, right? For us, we're, we're analysts, right? We, we have to keep up on that. And likewise, operators tend to focus on, e- on keyboard operations or technological developments, but some of this can actually affect their day-to-day, right? From a, a detection perspective or whatnot. So often, you know, if we're looking at those kind of three overarching buckets, if you will, right, where we're looking at an augmentation of capabilities, so as we move to IoT, as we move to 5G, as we move to other internet connected technologies, or as security technologies continue to innovate and try and keep pace with adversary tradecraft, right, there is a need to constantly evolve. So your existing uh, workforce might not have that capability in-house, and this is something that they might need to look elsewhere for, like Mandy and, Dove and others. And, and that's kind of an interesting point, right? Because when you take a core group of developers, right, they've got a background, they've got a style, often we're looking for human fingerprints. Um, that includes ways that they're conducting their activities. So different invocation methods, as well as like the different languages that they're using, right? It kind of runs the gamut. By bringing in outside talent, by recruiting or purchasing, procuring, or what have you, they end up kind of giving pause to the security research community where we're trying to look for commonality when we're trying to identify those characteristics that we see across multiple different sets, right? So if we have a group that we're following and they decide to use one of these vendors, right, it could actually be detrimental when we're trying to link together the intrusion sets uh, because we can't make necessarily the one-to-one correlation that we often would when we're conducting attribution analysis. One piece of this too that, that comes to mind as you're talking about this and obviously, I think the, the buy versus build discussion is an interesting one when you think about how different countries have pursued different strategies at developing or obtaining a capability in some way. And it makes a lot of sense that even a lot of countries that maybe initially started out buying that capability would want to bring that in-house, or at least pieces of that. As you know, there's different aspects of what we're talking about here with support to these operations. Um, that can run the gamut of different skill sets and capabilities. But certainly when you look at, certainly I guess maybe the, the surveillance capability market, the, the sort of um, exploits and services offered by companies like NSO Group and others, that is an interesting space that we certainly continue to see different countries leverage, right? We know that there's there's demand for that. That seems to also be different though than a company that works as a contractor specifically for one primary government. So maybe help us understand where those entities fit in 
the sort of surveillance capability providers or however you want to frame them that maybe, you know, are much more willing to service a wider uh, set of customers across different countries versus companies that provide one of those different services you were talking about earlier, but specifically only to, you know, the country maybe that they're headquartered in. Yeah, so that's actually a fascinating dichotomy. When you're thinking about kind of this ecosystem that exists for contractor support, you really got to break it down. And the way that we've kind of conceptualized it here, you can see all of the different parts interplaying with one another. It's CNE is just growing. It's been growing for years. It's it's a capability. It's an asymmetric capability that really kind of lends itself naturally towards foreign intelligence services being able to try and augment collection for a variety of different means, right? Um, whether that's IP theft, whether it's to gain uh, forward footing on diplomatic negotiations or just maintain kind of uh, counterintelligence presence. So when we're looking at kind of the establishment or the decision point for different governments as to who they choose and why they choose them, right, often we're seeing those kind of emerging programs or those governments who realize CNE is a viable pathway forward to help them achieve a national objective, they might not have all of the expertise in-house to operational security practices for procuring infrastructure, as well as developing malware, as well as administering command and control networks, as well as doing analysis against the collection take, so on and so forth. So they might turn to a group like NSO group or hacking team where they've actually got these bundled services offerings together, right? You know, it is a capability where they've already procured exploits from different various gray market vendors, and they're already including that in the product. So when you look at it from a pricing model perspective, they're offering a service that's kind of comprehensive that would be updated over time to kind of keep pace with changes in the security landscape, right? Where where it gets kind of interesting is when you start looking kind of like you pointed out, what are the companies that might be doing this nationalistically or why might a government want to buy just an individual capability, vulnerability research or an exploit that's discovered and, and procured? Now, that's, that's where you get into kind of a very interesting discussion about kind of the more established programs, the ones that have a long-standing footing, and why they might want to perhaps do this for augmentation of their existing footprint to integrate with other tools. It's um, when, when I would teach, oftentimes, one of the things that will come up, like when we talk about the concept of vulnerabilities or exploits, often it, it seems like there's a one-for-one, one. like, oh, well, there's a vulnerability and it's going to get me keys to the kingdom, when in reality, perhaps you might need five or six or seven vulnerabilities all chained together in order to procure an exploit that's going to get you to where you need to when you land on a target. So there is no great way of saying this, but you know, for certain changes we make in the security landscape detection, for instance, based on new activity, it might actually close up one of those pathways, one of the dependent vulnerabilities in kind of this exploit chain. So it it's... Um, in, in some ways, right, you've got governments that are buying it to have in the reserves. Uh, for some governments, they actually need it right now to conduct their operations. So the decision point's different, variable, and it kind of gets back to the question of, are there resources available? Is there finite headcount? Like kind of normal business organizational considerations that go into just kind of operating a CNE program or operating a team in general. Yeah, and if I can jump in there, I think you made a good point there, John, when you talked about resources, because I think sometimes we get too constrained focusing on specific technical resources, whether that, like you said, whether that's vulnerability research or any sort of like infrastructure administration. 
And, you know, I think we fail to look at the sort of ecosystem in which this all exists, that a lot of these skilled positions and these different techniques, operators and analysts and researchers, it takes a lot of time to develop these skills, particularly to the depth and to the expertise that a lot of nation states would want to employ. And so for some of these more nascent programs in a variety of different nation states, some of those countries have the money to purchase these capabilities immediately, but to grow that indigenously would simply take more time than perhaps they're willing to invest. So like you said, I think, you know, it's not that these states won't maybe build their own indigenous capability over time, but a group like NSO Group or some of these other companies that will sell to multiple different states, they can provide what is essentially a turnkey solution tomorrow. And particularly for a program, a CNE program that's focused on more tailored targets, where maybe if they don't have a broad range of targets or they have a specific and identified set of targets that they are already interested in, it's pretty, you know, relatively, I should say, relatively easy to just buy one of these turnkey solutions and immediately begin targeting whatever these specific victims may be. I think there's also some interesting examples where you've seen historically, you know, when we've had leaks that have come out about some of these surveillance capability companies and who their customer lists are seeing the specific organizations in those countries that are purchasers of those services, where we also know there's an organic capability that exists maybe in a different ministry or security service. Uh, so interesting to see maybe a similar dynamic that exists around the world where within the same country, you may have different levels, uh, different strategies around buy and build and outsourcing. And there may also be different, I guess, intra-governmental conflict around who gets access to what resources. And, you know, there may be a, a government or military unit that has developed uh, a capability or is working with outside entities to develop a capability that they just keep in house that they don't share with other parts of the government that may go elsewhere to, to develop that capability. So not unusual to, I think, see that when it comes up. Um, I guess the other thing I would note here too is the focus of this conversation is on the, the CNE activity that gets outsourced in, in some way, but you also have, and I think the, the IO team has done a great job writing this up. You know, we've seen a growing number of disinformation as a service entities out there, companies in, that are sort of shady marketing entities that will provide similar uh, services in the disinformation space. And that seems to be, you know, seeing a, a growing level of demand for those sorts of services. Just jumping off of that, because we've definitely seen this sort of trend in threat actors hiring either PR firms, marketing firms, or other just like third parties to supplement their IO operations. In I mean, we've seen it in elections in South America and the Middle East, where PR firms will spin up these inauthentic accounts as part of like coordinated activity to promote narratives in support of certain candidates. And then you look back and you realize all 20 or 30 of these Twitter accounts are actually going back to some, some shady firm that's just been propped up in support of a candidate. Um, it's definitely sort of a trend that's been happening recently. It's as much as we're going to talk about CE in this conversation, it's, it's spreading to other sort of silos, I guess, of application as well. One question I have for you guys about this, and I should have mentioned this at the beginning, the reason why we're doing this particular topic is because of a lot of great research that your your teams have been involved in over 2020, looking at this, this issue of, of contractor support uh, to offensive operations from many different angles. And we're going to talk more about some of the specifics and your methodology around that. One question I have, though, because this has come up in a lot of the uh, the episodes we did around the big four, 
and the role of the cybercrime ecosystem in each of the countries that we we covered and how that fits into this. And it looks different in every country. Uh, the relationship between the state and the cybercrime ecosystem looks different. The extent to which they leverage that, to the extent to which they allow that. But how do you think of those entities in situations where, you know, maybe they have an LLC uh, that they get paid through? Maybe they're kind of leveraged as independent contractors. How do you think of that in this where they're not necessarily, you know, what we would think of maybe of like a defense contractor here in the West, but that seems to still play a role in what you're describing of support along these different areas and is it something we should consider when we're talking about this? So I think there's there's a few ways to kind of conceptualize who the contractors to support the elements are and what their role might be. And you're right, there could be secondary linkages that happen. So in the case of the hacking team leak back in 2015 timeframe, you know, one of the interesting elements we saw on there listed as a customer of hacking team was, was Kavant Center. Kavant Center ostensibly is kind of an R&D national lab for Russia. What we've discovered through the SciTech leaks and the Kavant leaks and a few of these other leaks is that, well, they had an interplay with, with FSB Center 16 and Center 18, so both the SIGINT service as well as ostensibly the information security entity under the FSB, right? So here you have an example where, you know, you're now two layers removed, and it's not infeasible to think that criminals might also have a similar like hand that extends just a little bit further. And I know James has done a lot of good research on this, so uh, I'll, I'll turn it over to him to kind of weigh in on. Thanks, John. Yeah, I think you make a great point. And I think um, this is maybe a little bit outside the scope of our power here at Mandian as a private security institution. But I think this is what makes it very difficult for states that are trying to respond to this sort of activity, because you can kind of break these contractors. You know, we have talked about a variety of different ways to sort them, but I guess you could talk about the quote unquote legitimacy of their organization, right? Where you have lawful intercept capabilities that are either developed in-house or that are purchased from a uh, some sort of vendor. And, you know, a lot of countries have lawful intercepts, and that's generally regarded by states as a sort of acceptable, an acceptable procedure for national police forces or other like law enforcement agencies. At the same time, it's very easy for that sort of uh, lawful intercept capability to bleed into, I guess, what we consider cyber espionage. And I think that's where it gets hard, particularly for like the United States or some of the other Western countries that are trying to either sanction or at least bring awareness to some of these organizations that are conducting this research, that are providing these capabilities to a variety of what we would consider allied or malicious actors. And, you know, it's really difficult because there is that sort of fluke, like you mentioned, that that criminal interplay in some instances where maybe this is a group that used to be a, you know, made up of criminal hackers or other operators that have decided to, you know, get out of crime, if you will, and, you know, turn legitimate. And, you know, is if that company now provides, quote unquote, legitimate lawful intercept capabilities, or if they're, you know, if these former criminal actors are now working for an otherwise legitimate company, it makes it very difficult for other law enforcement organizations and, and you know, nation states in general, other countries to maybe provide this sort of uh, tailored or maybe targeted response, or in, in some cases, like with the U.S., sanctions that they may want for specific organizations. 
So let's get into talking a little bit about your research methodology. And we talked about kind of, I guess, at, at a very high level, you know, what are, when we look around the globe, some of the, the ways we see this relationship play out. But specifically, when you were studying this and you were looking at, again, the activity we've seen over the years, and I think a big piece that's that's apparent when you read some of these reports is how useful the indictments and sanctions that we've increasingly seen from Western governments has played in filling out some of those gaps between where we've observed tactical operations and campaigns, where we know particular countries are, you know, have a wealth of, of talent uh, in the private sector that they can leverage. Now we've got specific entities that are, are being increasingly mentioned, and that helps give us an idea, again, well, that sort of organizational level, what that looks like, where there's specific companies providing support to specific ministries or security services. So maybe Michelle and James, talk a little bit about what you kind of approached writing these papers around. What was your research methodology with this? I was going to say it was a lot of, as you pointed out, just living on the DOJ's website and just seeing every single criminal complaint indictment. And it helped really connect a lot of the dots of XYZ actor. Okay, well, here, here's their actual name. Here's who the DOJ says they're tied to, like which APT they're associated with. And for me, it was really helpful in seeing sort of this, the sheer magnitude of the, the IP theft that uh, we were dealing with. I think overall, from that, I kind of gleaned that there, there seemed to be about like two driving factors that motivated the use of contractors. It was IP theft and it was regime stability. And it became, going back to what Doyle was saying about, you know, the cost benefit analysis of, do you steal something versus do you have the money to develop it in-house? That sort of thing. When you just decide, okay, we're going to steal it rather than going through the arduous R&D. There were so many that were just fell into that category. And there were so many that also fell into sort of, you know, monitoring government dissidents and critics or using contractors for their offensive capabilities for recon to do sort of conventional uh, intel collection via espionage campaigns. So yeah, it was it was a lot of sanctions. It was a lot of indictments. It was a lot of just open source reporting and uh, security research reporting, and some internal stuff that kind of helped contextualize the back end of what we are seeing to help sort of paint the bigger picture of how many countries are actually using it. In addition to the big four, uh, a lot of the emerging powers that are using freelancers and contractors, sort of like a, the great equalizer of spinning up to have these capabilities that they don't have the the means or the opportunity to make in-house. So have there been a lot of indictments or sanctions that have moved beyond, I know obviously with, with Iran, uh, China, North Korea, not North Korea, sorry, Russia, uh, those three in particular, there have been a decent number that have identified companies or entities that have been providing support to, to state operations. Also, when you think about those three countries, those are three countries that have a pretty well-educated, you know, technical talent base, um, a lot of, you know, good computer science programs in those countries or people have access to that. Beyond those, though, what are, what are some of the other interesting countries that that came up in, in doing this study? Um, I'd say, uh, what I can say publicly, um, I, I'd probably uh, highlight Vietnam as an example. Um, it was actually through security researchers at Facebook that we found uh, through their Reporting, they indicated that APT32, there was some threat activity on the platform related to a company called Cyber One Group. And they released that in about, I think, December 2020. 
And they were allegedly creating false accounts and personas, posing as companies and activists to leverage lures against targets of interest. And this kind of ran the gamut from domestic human rights activists, foreign governments, people tied to NGOs, media agencies, it, the list is endless. But it was kind of an example of just, it's not just the big four. It's, if you have the money, I mean, you have the tools, it's, it's right there. So that was pretty surprising to see. If I could piggyback off of that, it's it's kind of interesting when you look at all of the different vehicles that exist out there that have identified in different ways, shapes, and forms elements of a cyber program. So when we're looking at the DOJ indictments, for instance, or or EU indictments, you know, one of the things we're looking at is the names of individuals associated with the programs, what they did, what their role was, what the personas that they had, what their handles are. You know, if you then take that and you compare it to some of the information that's leaked through like Digital Revolution or Intrusion Truth or some of the other sources that we've seen kind of play out for leaking this type of information, you then build out this kind of network. So you can do link analysis pretty quickly against it. And building out that network, building out that that schema, that structure, you really quickly start to identify related or suspected related personas and individuals and entities. It's, it's, it's very similar to kind of our pivoting methodology that we use as a CTI community when we're trying to identify malicious infrastructure, right? There is suspected and there's different levels of confidence based on how far out you get. It's it's a little bit different because when you're when you're dealing with it in this capacity, it all depends on what those indicators are and the level of fidelity that they actually give you for level of suspicion, if you will. And I think this is a great place to add that uh, using contractors for a variety of different countries is kind of a double-edged sword in some instances as well. If other countries are able to provide these indictments, particularly the US DOJ, right, the information and the insight that we get from those indictments and being able to connect different actors to a variety of different activity, that can be extremely useful for us as security researchers to be able to tie all that activity together. Maybe it's supported all by a specific agency, um, sometimes within the same country, but in other instances, if we are able to receive insights, we say, okay, for instance, malware analysis, right? I know there's a lot of contention around whether malware analysis is a reliable way to connect specific actor sets. And I think contractors are the perfect example of why sometimes that can be very misleading, in fact. That, for instance, if uh, different companies are able to provide the same tool to multiple different organizations, sometimes with like Russia or China, maybe that's the same tool to multiple different state agencies. So it's relatively within the same actor set, right? We still have that sort of attribution within the country. But, you know, when we kind of broaden that scope and we're talking about groups like NSO or, or other, other more tailored organizations that provide custom malware, if they're providing that malware to multiple different vendors, or excuse me, those vendors are providing it to multiple different countries, that can sometimes actually maybe throw off our analysis. If we're tracking a specific infection chain, we say, okay, well, it always comes back to the same organization, but those are in wildly different, you know, targeting schemes or for different collection purposes, that can sometimes do, I don't want to say as much harm as good, but can certainly be a bit of a red herring when we're trying to conduct attribution. That's a great point. It makes me think of, um, there's a company in a certain, I'll say, Southeast Asian nation that historically for a long period of time was only ever observed with operations connected or presumed to be connected and attributed to that country, things that seem to be in support of those that country's objectives. 
And then at one point, several years ago, there was some very good research that came out showing that they were also selling some of those services to other countries, I think in, in Central Asia at this point. So it's an interesting one where it it's not quite or doesn't at least start off as one of these groups that are selling uh, surveillance capabilities to, to everyone. They were a very, very wide market. And maybe it starts off as a um, entity that is primarily servicing the government, again, where they're located. But you look at, um, in some cases, the willingness of those certain countries that have certain capabilities that have an industry in the space to allow export of those capabilities and services to other countries that are considered friendly to that country, it can very quickly, once that process starts to happen, make attribution a little bit different, a little bit more difficult for that. Michelle. I will say, in addition to sort of, it's like the the double, double-edged sword of indictments, um, <laughs> but we're we're seeing it from, from our perspective. The, it, it can also backfire. When you're naming and shaming, I mean, when you have these sanctions and when you have these punishments, they can be used as internal propaganda by the the nation in question that's quote unquote being punished. And they that can be used to sort of maintain regime stability at home when they're seeing, you know, this is the West trying to antagonize us. This is them accusing us of all X, Y, Z. And you can use that to sort of drum up support at home. And a lot of these threat groups that end up getting compromised anyway, what will usually happen is you'll see them sort of laid low for a while, but it's usually short-lived. And <clears throat> any sort of benefits of highlighting them in these complaints and in these indictments, I mean, it's it's ephemeral. It Soon they're um, hitting the ground running again, and they're just sort of back to their old ways. So it's it's good in the short term, but in the long term, it just, you know, doesn't really do anything. So another area to consider is when you're purchasing exploits, when you're purchasing malware from different gray market entities, or if you're contracting it out to a specific company, right? There, there becomes this kind of capitalist ideology of, are you going to sell it for exclusive rights or are you going to sell it non-exclusively? And this is where it gets a little complicated because when we're looking at price points, so if we look at kind of the Zerodium studies that point out the value of a certain exploit for a different for a various operating system, right? You can see, you know, price points at two hundred plus thousand dollars, but it doesn't give you kind of that level of granularity of if I'm to sell this for exclusive rights to a certain government, right? What what is the extra amount I have to put on there for my time as the developer? versus non-exclusive rights where you might see multiple entities actually procure the same exploit, which that then leads into kind of this conversation of, you know, does does that hinder attribution? And if so, in what ways? Well, Luke, to go back to something you said earlier, I think this is an interesting trend that we're seeing across the security market, both within legitimate security vendors like Mandiant and a lot of our peers, as well as within the professional uh, criminal community, if you will, and within these sort of third-party contractors, uh, whether they're malware vendors, exploit providers, whatever it is, that the difference between providing a service multiple times as opposed to providing a single sort of custom, like John said, custom or exclusive rights to a particular capability, it's just different models of monetization, right? And so if you're a professional criminal group, instead of you running all of your own ransomware operations, maybe you license it, if you will, you license your ransomware platform to affiliates, they're able to run those operations on your behalf, and then you take a small cut of whatever that ransom is. 
Same with uh, whether it's some of the Israeli vendors or any of the other vendors across the world. Do you provide that license to a specific organization that you feel like you can trust or that you know fits within whatever your company's sort of mission and goals are? Or do you provide that more widely to maybe less reputable nations that perhaps may be more inclined to abuse that? So it's not just the threat in terms of us as security professionals trying to attribute this activity, but it also could be a threat to the vendors themselves, right? You're actually destroying your own business if maybe you provide it too widely, but to the same extent, if you sell it for too low of a price to an exclusive nation, you may not be able to sustain that sort of development process and those costs. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Talk to me a little bit about some of the findings then, you know, looking at specific organizations that you've identified, some of which again have come out because of these indictments and sanctions. What are, what are we seeing in terms of where do they fit in or what types of services are they providing when we think about this, this suite of different ways contractors support operations? So I think in looking at the indictments, what surprised me was the Mavna Institute, uh, which is affiliated with the group Silent Librarian, which is an Iranian threat group. They mainly was used for, uh, this contractor was mainly used for IP theft. And according to one of the DOJ indictments, they lifted about, oh God, like 31 terabytes of data across 176 universities in 21 foreign countries. And it kind of put in perspective the sheer magnitude of this collection they're doing and they hit everything from you know universities private sector companies nonprofits government organizations this was a smash and grab that was kind of against the world <laughs> but it was a uh, it was just surprising to see uh the sheer magnitude and how wide this was we've also seen according to the the DOJ uh in I believe they released it in November 2017 the information security firm Boyusek which is a Chinese firm between 2011 and May 2017 targeted, you know, financial engineering and tech groups also for IP theft. And I think they're also associated with APT3, but it was from, I think the IP theft sort of silo of seeing how much they were using contractors for this specific purpose and using this as the, the motivating factor for things they wanted to grab that they wouldn't get through that they weren't willing to go through the arduous R&D process to, in order to get, just hit the universities, just hit these groups, and get it that way. It was really surprising to see. Do you see a noticeable breakdown in the difference between how different countries, uh, specifically the ones, again, that are, are mentioned, a lot of these indictments and sanctions, how they're utilizing contractors? So you're noting, at least with some of those groups out of Russia, or sorry, no. Not Russia. I keep mentioning the wrong countries, <laughs> China and Iran, uh, that they're using those groups to go after to, after IP, but maybe even just kind of where they play in the ecosystem for operations from those different countries. Is there any sort of noticeable differences in how different countries are using contractors? I'll take a stab at this one. So there's, there's two different formats for kind of indictments, if you look at it, right? There's uh, looking at companies that have been added to the indictments and then individuals. And both are useful for various means. When I was looking at the recent North Korean indictments that came out last year, one of the things that stood out to me is not only did they identify, you know, these six or seven different types of Android applications that were being used to kind of try and, and bait individuals based on cryptocurrency type themes, but also they identified a company that was stood up almost as a front company 
called Marine Chain, which is kind of interesting. So it then begs the question of, all right, thinking about regime priorities, thinking about different country priorities for these different APT groups, how are they using the various CNE programs? How are they using the individuals associated with it or how are they building those out? And, and in this case, right, like Marine Chain, if we if we kind of look at the trending we've seen over over the last few years, there's been a pretty noticeable effort that the U.S. government and like-minded partners have been pursuing to kind of clamp down on North Korean exports of various different technologies and other goods, right? And we we noticed a long time ago, APT 38, more or less going after banks and then start to expand their aperture and footprint to look at cryptocurrency exchanges, things of that nature. So it it's not out of the realm of possible that there is connections that exist between, you know, these different government entities, you know, like in the North Korea context, and why they might try and establish this type of a front company to help provide them with the ability to operate outside of North Korea. And I know I know Michelle probably has more examples of this than I do here. So I'm gonna pass the ball. Yeah, I would just say overall, I think with front companies, from what we've seen, it's a way to sort of fill the the skills gap and pull from a larger talent pool, which might not initially be amenable to using their technical skills for offensive purposes. So what we've seen is through uh, research from places like Intrusion Truth, where APC40 has at least 13 of these front companies to advertise job posts that you usually associate with offensive cyber threat activity. Granted, we haven't been able to corroborate any of their findings, but what Mandiant has seen overall is that front companies are sort of used to augment that sort of lack of team. They're used to fill out the team. They're used to fill out the tech team when you, you know, for whatever reason, it's too expensive to hire or it's too takes too long to hire. Front companies are used to pull that talent and to reel them in, you know, maybe private sector pays more than what the government would or whatever they're using as their their motivation. But we've seen that a lot in, in these indictments and in our research of how front companies are used to sort of fill out where that gap occurs. Were there any interesting trends that came up in terms of where you get to real name identities. And I know, you know, in our, our work and attribution, we don't put out publicly where maybe we have seen that or we have strong indications that a specific individual, we can tie back to an operation because of the organization they're known to be a part of, whether that's a, a government employee or a, you know, member of one of these contracted out entities. But I'm thinking back to, um, there was a group way, way back in the day that we found, came across uh, that we called Havildar Team operating out of a Southeast and East Asian uh, country. And their entity, they had an, an actual company that nominally was making sort of iPhone and Android game apps. But their operations, um, some of those were, were malicious apps and some other additional activity involved targeting. When you looked at the, the set of targets that we were able to identify were mostly military members of a rival country neighboring them. It was interesting looking at, you know, the, the the LinkedIn presence of some of these developers. We were able to identify at least a few of them in part because of so there was some poor OPSEC that was going on here. They left some stuff exposed and some of which involved testing of their uh, capabilities. Some of these, these apps that included taking photos that ended up being of the developers themselves uh, and then leaving some of those, those test images out there. 
but it was interesting looking at, you know, for example, one piece of malware that they were using switched from being written in a different language to being compiled and written in, in .NET shortly after they had hired a .NET uh, developer. And again, this is all in this individual's LinkedIn page. So were you able to, I guess, have some of these, you know, were any situations where it came up where you you saw sort of interesting trends that you could map to the threat activity based on individuals that you know were working at these organizations at different times that had certain capabilities or a certain focus of, of what they did? Or again, where we've seen in, in um, examples where particularly on the development side with particular pieces of malware, evidence of a certain individual's workstation being exposed because of how they compiled that malware, where we've been able to tie that back to specific individuals. Again, where we've not necessarily talked about this publicly, but where that's come up and that's been useful for, for attribution purposes. Yes, but we can't really talk about those findings. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess maybe so, we talk to you about yeah. like how that plays into this process where you're trying to take... Yeah, my question is not really into the specifics of any particular example, but how that plays into when you're looking at, all right, I know this organization exists and that this organization does work for certain entities based on the indictments and, and sanctions that have come out. And then I also know that this campaign, this activity, based on what we know, looks a lot like what's described in terms of what these individuals are supporting. What are some ways that that information can be tied back into or, or be useful for just another piece of data to do attribution and to, to kind of tie in all this activity together? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a totally fair question. So you're you're essentially looking at two different components here. You're looking at suspected entities, companies, right? And when you do you could look at job postings that have been online at given point in times on different forums whether it's through their website or whether it's through uh, in indeed or equivalents of like indeed.com. And then you're also looking at the individuals identified in the indictments too, and understanding that people's online presence have different personas, different aliases, um, and trying to map those two together. And so a lot of this ends up being kind of research. And if you've been looking at it for a substantial amount of time, you can start cataloging and characterizing different overlaps over time, right? So where individuals go, where they might have worked, who they might be connected with, how they kind of are linked in or when vacancies close and are not reposted, right? There are all kind of these tells, but they don't necessarily unto themselves get you to individual X was responsible for operation Y without kind of this additional context that, that most private cybersecurity companies don't necessarily have. I mean, it might be something that governments have the purview and the insights on, but that's not something that's usually... Um, known to private companies. But to your point, though, right, you can absolutely look at online personas and map that to like development paths. So PDB strings are a great example of that. So if you can actually find the PDB path and link the alias that someone uses online, chances are they're not going to be switching aliases, right? They're probably doing dev from the exact same laptop in which they're browsing the web. They're um, connecting to all of these different online presences. So we, we have in a few cases been able to find and get lucky with some linkage that way, but we can't publicly share what, we, what we've actually found there. <laughs> Sorry, Luke. I, I knew we were going to get bump up against that wall at some point uh, in this discussion, but I think it's still an interesting component. Whether you're looking at contractors or, you know, in cases where, and I think there's been a couple examples that have been publicized by other vendors where they've been able to attribute in part because of 
individuals that were leaking some of that that data. In in my experience, correct me if I'm wrong or you've seen otherwise, a lot of that is usually on the on the dev side. The the development of malware versus you know, the the operators that are actually active in the intrusion, maybe sometimes also the folks involved in setting up infrastructure and registering stuff where they've exposed information when, you know, going through that process. Absolutely. Uh, oftentimes, and, and that's kind of why I wanted to scene set with the construct of a CNE type program, right? When we're doing attribution, the question always comes up, well, you've attributed it to uh, fuzzy, snuggly panda bears. Uh, okay, cool. What does that actually mean? Well, you know, are we doing attribution to a dev group? Are we doing attribution to the infrastructure wing? Are we doing attribution to the actual on-net operators? And you know, what what we tend to find with our kind of un- uncategorized clusters of activity is over time, when there's enough overlap between them, we then have confidence and kind of varying confidence that they are one and the same. They are all interconnected. So there's this interplay, you know, when we're thinking about doing attribution of, okay, are we just signaturing for the devs, right? That would require, you know, a lot of, a lot of malware, a lot of uh, being able to kind of extract that information when it's not in a PE format, like how are you going to pull that? There are ways to do it. It's just a little more tricky, but to your point, right? Human fingerprints, human characteristics, they all, they're, they're all tells and it's really hard to change preferences and styles. Right. So in, in a in a large way, when we're thinking about kind of the CTI profession, kind of the attribution problem that we face, right, like ascribing that kind of forensic psychology perspective is incredibly useful, irrespective of the technical indicators. So it's like know your data set and then know what you're trying to achieve and find the right the right area of expertise that's going to complement that. But similarly, like when we're looking at kind of the on net operations, we're looking for behavioral indicators, behavioral preferences versus things like coding style, for instance. So I think to your point of the initial question that you asked us, um, yeah, often we do find aliases and handles embedded more readily in different pieces of compiled malware. But likewise, we find preferences of infrastructure providers, uh, excuse me, not providers, individuals who procure the infrastructure, right? Because if um, uh, activity is, you know, supposed to be related to one campaign, perhaps it has different fingerprints that are going to be similar. So the OMB hack was a great example of this, where the Chinese espionage group was actually using the true names of Avenger characters for registration. So you can hypothesize, you know, take intelligence there and quickly say, okay, let me, you know, throw out a few names, Natasha Romanoff, maybe there's registrations with that. And then I can find additional commonality that would help bolster the argument that this might be related to the same registrant activity I was seeing. And we, we do that all the time. I mean, we, we try to find patterns. That's, that's just part of, you know, the, the, the day in the life of a CTI analyst. That's incredibly scary. You use that example. Cause that was exactly the one I was thinking of, of, uh, as you were talking through that, of all the different examples you could think of of infrastructure, weird TTPs, that was that was the one I was thinking about too. Captain America and Tony Stark and some of the other names that were used as part of that. When you, I guess you know, you've done an excellent job with these deep dive reports and the study into how contractors are being used and what it looks like and what it looks like in different countries. And again, where you have different models, some of which are being exported more internationally. Where do you see this going? Certainly, I think that there's a demand 
for all the different flavors of the, the types of services that you've covered here and that we've talked about, whether that's buying or building their own. It seems like a lot of, of countries increasingly, especially if they have budget, maybe they want to start doing more and building more in-house. But even that is going to rely on contractors within that country, uh, potentially. So, you know, the, the proliferation of capabilities never seems to really be slowing down. But it certainly seems to be evolving in some ways. And the capabilities that exist within different countries is probably growing over the years. The, the local talent that these different countries can source, um, even ones that aren't top tier players. So where do you see this? And this is a very, very broad question to kind of bring this back home. But where do you see this overall trend going from, from what you've studied so far? I think one place we might see this going is, is a bit of a separation between two different types of contracting companies. There's, there'll be sort of a, a bifurcation between legitimate companies that want to sell various capabilities, whether it's exploits or vulnerability um, research and analysis or actual turnkey solutions uh, all the way through you know, infrastructure procurements, et cetera. But companies that provide it to legitimate countries and legitimate agencies you know, under the guise of following international law. I think we'll kind of see a group that falls into that set of of so-called, you know, uh, legitimate offensive security vendors. And I think the other way we'll see it split is companies that are not so much interested in maintaining some sort of uh, public or, you know, like well-renowned brand recognition, but providing whatever sorts of capabilities that they need to the countries and to the other organizations, whether they're intel agencies, national police, whomever it may be that maybe don't have the same sort of positive reputation that their counterparts would in other countries. And I think an element of that will be like Sean and Michelle mentioned about some of these companies that are either front companies or maybe they're not a front company, but they are solely headquartered, operated out of and provide to a specific country, whether that's in Russia or China or Iran, it's going to be very difficult to actually disrupt and interdict their operations because, uh, at least here from the West, because those countries have that sort of, I guess they have the ability to draw on that talent and we have very little ability to interrupt it if there's no sort of international attempt at business or other, you know, sales of products. So I don't know if that makes sense in terms of, you know, legitimate companies and the companies that maybe are a little bit in the gray area. But I guess I kind of see that split where those legitimate companies still will have a share in the market. They'll still be able to provide capabilities, but maybe perhaps going forward to avoid some of the bad publicity that other companies have gotten. They'll be maybe more discerning in what capabilities they provide and to which actors. Just going off of uh, James's point, with the sort of the gray area companies, I'm, I don't know, it's not like looking forward to, but I'm just seeing these companies sort of get hamstrung by late stage capitalism of the price point versus distribution versus dissemination of them. I'm just, I think that's where we're headed with that sort of second group of threat actors that we're seeing of, you know, at what point do they just have coupon codes for this stuff? I mean, I, I'd be interested to see where the direction that that, sort of group takes knowing that they don't sort of appreciate the you know credibility or reputation or any of them or the legitimacy that any of the other companies are trying to sort of uphold what happens when you just sort of lean into the gray area I, it's not really sort of in 
I wouldn't say it's sort of like an, an assessment for the future. It's one of the things I'm sort of, it'll be an interesting space to follow as they evolve. I think that was a point that when we had Kim Zetter on and we were talking a little bit about NSO group and some of the similar entities. And if, you know, we're certainly seeing more of a global backlash now uh, against entities like that. Her point was that it could drive more and more of that, those sorts of capabilities underground because the capabilities themselves aren't going away. There's obviously demand globally for that. And, you know, it's very easy for the alumni of those companies to just go off and reform and find some investors and backers and and start up a, a similar capability. Well, Luke, I think there's another point too that's interrelated here, which is, you know, as this space becomes more well-known, irrespective of the direction that companies or even gray market providers play, there's going to be cognizance um, from different services. And if they want to further remove themselves from contractors, they will put in place additional mechanisms, front companies, things of that nature to act as kind of that intermediary broker. It's it's kind of natural, but at some at the same point in time, when we look at some of the cyber operations we've seen before, you know, the responses vary across the board. Does the actor care that they're caught? Are they still using the same tools? Are they still using the same techniques? And I think to try and generalize would be almost a fool's errand in this case. And it's going to have to be taken almost on a case by case basis. Yeah. Talk a little bit of that about that a little bit more, because I think that is something that's worth that maybe doesn't get discussed as much, which is we sometimes paint with very broad brushstrokes about, you know, China cares X amount about attribution being attributed or having their groups attributed or same thing for Russia. When you obviously such a see such a wide disparity in terms of how specific groups respond when a sanction comes out, when someone drops a white paper about their activity, um, that variation maybe rolls up to the organizations that they directly support. And you still see variation between MSS and PLA, et cetera. But even within groups within those same organizations seem to have varied responses of caring about being attributed and fingered out. Does that change at all? Or is there anything that particularly for a contracted entity that those sorts of groups in general might care a little bit more because it it could impact their direct business at all? Or is it still something that's just going to vary across the board, actor to actor? That's a toughie. Um, it's probably still going to be actor to actor. So if, so long as services are rendered, right? So if the goal is to obtain a new capability that's going to enable access to a particular technology to uh, land a foothold, right? So long as the vendor could guarantee that their exploits are going to do it, or if it's purchased from like a catalog of exploits or a subscription-based service, so long as they are still in the driver's seat with being able to be good on that guarantee that they're providing customers, perhaps it's less of a concern for the different government entities that are purchasing this. What that what that might mean, though, is the price point will continue to increase in order to kind of gain the rights there um, just because there's more eyes on the problem now. There's more awareness. And this is something that's being tackled both at a national and an international level. Yeah, and that's also an interesting point, Michelle, you were making there at the end too about just the economics of this as another component in, into all of this, um, what that looks like. And if we do see, you know, in in countries that have a particularly strong talent base and you get alumni from the security services that that rotate out and go start off, you know, their own startup 
uh, doing something here to go back and, and sell to their their old former coworkers, you know, does that change the economics in some of these areas in ways that has an impact on the overall threat landscape? We've covered a lot here, and there's probably so much still to 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 talk about. And um, this doesn't do justice to all the great work that you guys have in these reports. Any final thoughts or any things that, in particular, people should be considering when they're thinking about this topic? We'll just go around the horn here. I think, you know, be careful of what job you're posting to. You never know if it's a front company for someone else. Know who you're working for. Yeah, trust but verify for, for your employment, I guess. Yes, there's some folks that have had to learn the hard way with that. Yeah. It's also amazing, and we've, we've kind of touched on this in an early discussion, but it's always amazing how detailed some people will allow their public LinkedIn or resume to be in terms of projects and things that they've been involved with in the past. So there's an OPSEC consideration there that's always interesting. History tends to repeat itself. So knowing history is often a good baseline to move from. So like as as kind of I was seeing some of the Vasanar arrangement stuff and export control come into play, right? This is very nostalgic of crypto wars in the 90s and then crypto war 2.0 where it's like, okay, I'll just find a way to do something different, whether in this case it's, you know, there's parity that you can find, you know, companies as they're being outed, right? What's their calculus? Is it incorporate in a different co- country Does, uh, or headquarter in a different country than reincorporate? Is it dissolve the company and just have a few level, a uh, few different individuals focus on that? Is it completely split off and create a brand new LLC or whatnot? But there's, I think a lot, um, that you can find in history that perhaps has been almost lost based on kind of attrition of individuals in this field, right? A lot of a lot of people in kind of the cybersecurity community and the CTI community have had to learn this lesson over time. And then as you're thinking about institutional making bodies that perhaps haven't had this the same kind of experiences in play, um, looking at cyber threats, they they might not have this kind of context. So kind of really knowing and understanding what's played out before in related contexts could really help shape decision-making. So I guess that would be my my lesson learned here. And I think an interesting element here that we've alluded to, but I don't know if we've addressed directly is, you know, I I think a huge impact on this space is going to be how the world reacts in terms of uh, legislation and what becomes legal and what becomes illegal. Right. So like there's a lot of effort to maintain this sort of legitimacy and legality of some of these organizations. But as countries uh, determine what they think is fair and isn't fair within this space, you know, if there's a lot of new legislation and there's a lot of new explicit legislation targeting some of these companies and targeting the, the providing of these capabilities, you know, there, I think there's an element that we might see some of this, like you mentioned earlier, some of this might get pushed underground entirely and that we kind of give up this facade of legitimacy and that, like you said, there's n- these capabilities aren't going to go away. Um, you know, developers aren't going to stop providing these capabilities and infrastructure and exploit development, et cetera. But, uh, you know, maybe we'll move away from this sort of like quasi legitimate front company sort of presentation and I'll just move back into maybe the criminal underground or other areas where we've continued to see these these techniques flourish. Well it's gonna be a lot of a lot of interesting work for people in the cyber policy realm, certainly those that work on on global issues and cyber diplomacy. But thank you all for this very interesting discussion around this space that you've done some some great and excellent research in this past year. 
and excited to see uh, what new things emerge if you carry on with the follow on uh, series. Thank you all for your time today. Take care. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thanks, Cheers. Cheers.